This is Connery, a speculative novel, written by John Bleasdale. Chapter 17 I first met Arnie Cohen in the early noughts, soon after I'd started working for Alan Parlin at the CIA. Following 9-11, the CIA contacted some Hollywood producers and sought their advice. The idea wasn't totally without merit, just almost totally. The most common reaction to people watching the Twin Towers go down and the Pentagon in flames was that this seems like a film. Movies had pre-trained us in catastrophe and spectacular violence. There were theories that the terrorists themselves had sought inspiration from big, explosive action movies. And so the CIA realised they'd been moving along in the usual trajectories, fighting last year's war, essentially. The attack had been a veritable black swan, a, a paradigm shift. So we needed to inject some imagination into the process, and where better than Hollywood? Of course, the premise was flawed from the outset. The fact is, there had been some pretty good intelligence predicting what was about to happen. My report had gained a reputation, and I was perfectly happy to take the credit. But I had cribbed it from journalists and from other intelligence dossiers that were available in the run-up to the attack, as well as using Angela's stuff. Alerts had been sounded, it was just people hadn't been listening. George W. Bush had been handed a report about the imminent attack, and had told the briefer, OK, you've covered your ass, and then did nothing. Arnie Cohen was in his late twenties and had already made a series of mid-level films, the kind that had named stars, names you recognise but wouldn't necessarily make you go and see the movie. Also directors who might have been quite something once upon a time, but had been at least a decade away from their last hit. Either that or hot new talent who'd cut their teeth on music videos or SNL, but weren't quite ready for the big screen. This isn't me telling you this now, this is how Arnie himself characterised it. You'd start him talking, and then he'd go off like a set of wind-up teeth. Perfect teeth, in a healthily tanned, tight, wrinkleless face, spieling away in a never-ending elevator pitch. But he'd sell you with a large dose of honesty, humour and self-awareness. If you can show people that you get it, that you get how you're seen, even if this is to your detriment, then they assume everything else you tell them is likewise candid. The oysters here are all proof I'll ever need of your courage, but be warned, eating them can be like the final scene from The Deer Hunter, and you're Christopher Walken. Spoiler, in case you hadn't seen the film. Hey, bullshit, I don't care if I spoil it. If you hadn't seen it by now, and you're over 25, you merit no consideration. I met Arnie first in some windowless conference room with danishes and sandwiches cut into triangles, piled on paper doilies, on paper plates, on cardboard trays. Everyone was drinking coffee, a selection of juices from jugs, apple, orange and pineapple, and sparkling water. One of the overhead lights had a slight flicker, giving everything a subliminal anxiety, and the air conditioning blew a cruel, unforgiving breeze. Arnie looked more like the stereotype movie producer than any others, barrel-shaped with a gaudy shirt open to the chest bone and an expansive, friendly motormouth manner. Another producer called Simon was dressed in cycling gear, including shoes, which had toe sections for some reason, which made him look like he had bare feet, even though he was obviously wearing something down there. Anika was dark and Greek-looking, 
with a dry, throaty, cigarette-stained laugh and an obvious love of profanity. They each came out with pitches they'd come up with, though I imagined that the work had been outsourced. A small room of writers had spent half a morning on them, I was sure. There were photogenic targets and events. Someone mentioned the Super Bowl, the New York Marathon, Times Square, Disneyland. The zeal with which Annika talked about napalming Disneyland from the air during a perfect hot holiday afternoon made me wonder if she hadn't considered doing it herself. She certainly didn't sound like she would be unhappy if it happened. Imagine the guys in costumes all running and burning, Goofy and the rest of those Fs. Just Jesus, that would look good. As they talked and riffed on each other's ideas, they got increasingly excited. Hell, it's so easy to get a job there, you could probably have a couple of insiders whip out machine guns and start spraying the survivors. Simon nodded vigorously. I'd do the Oscars, said Arnie. Block the exits. Mounted machine guns on timers spraying the auditorium. Anika laughed. During the in-memoriam section. No, no. Now we wait until the best picture announcement. That way half the room is ready to die anyway. Roll a couple of grenades down the aisle, Simon said. I bet that asshole Cruz would jump on one to save lives. Well, what Thetan wouldn't, Anika said. There were some more ordinary ideas. Uh, a train with a dirty bomb being run into a major metropolitan area, a nuclear power plant being attacked or a missile silo. Most of it was totally useless. It was another example of fighting the battle we just lost again. Next time would be significantly different. They'd done the planes, so it was natural to assume that security would amp up at airports. They'd have to go after something else, a soft target. A nuclear power plant or a missile silo was not that. Even Disneyland was probably not that. You might be able to get at something while the guard was down, but the guard was up. Most decidedly, in fact, it was beginning to have an impact on me. Suddenly, surveillance was going up everywhere. Flight patterns were being recorded and analysed, as was data from search engines and a whole other number of back doors. It was all algorithms and red flags. The side effect was that murdering people was going to be unreasonably difficult just at the moment, and that, paradoxically, According to my white envelopes and green slips from Mr Arrow, ever more people required murdering. We had a break for coffee and because Arnie needed to smoke, I escorted him through the myriad corridors to the car park, where he wasn't supposed to smoke but no one would care. So who are you, he said. What's Limey doing sitting with these high-end CIA types and scribbling our nonsense on a legal pad? That's some very interesting ideas, I demurred. Bullshit, was his immediate response. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I enjoy the intrigue, and your pastries are not without historical value. This croissant is what they ate in the 19th century. This, this actual croissant. They were a bit dry. Dry! I've tasted moisture sand. Hey, listen, back to my questions. What are you, are you, a, you a Brit? You an Aussie? I'm English, though my mother was Irish. Hey, I like you already. You want to smoke? Uh, no thanks. I bet it's a story, he said. You look like a guy with a story to tell. Look, you're smiling. I made you smile. I'm right. I'm right. I'm funny because I'm always true. Always, always true. So go on. Go on. What's your story? I, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> he almost yelled, flicked his cigarette high in the air, slapped me on the back, and we went back inside. There was another hour of talk. A scenario where someone got control of the communication satellites and smashed them into each other to cause a global internet blackout was genuinely interesting, causing a Kessler syndrome or ablation cascade. I'd see the idea in a film a few years later. I wondered if it had come from our session, but they were beginning to run out of steam. As they left, Arnie gave me his card and told me to get in touch. 
He'd buy me lunch if I gave him a story. Even if it's heavily redacted, it's got to be better than this shit we've been doing here. I don't know why I contacted him. I left it for another month, but then I was in San Diego to drown a local environmental activist, and luckily for me, an ardent surfer. I had a flight booked from LAX so I wouldn't crop up on too many passenger manifests where murders took place, and on a whim, I called Arnie. At first he didn't remember me, and it didn't help that we hadn't actually used our real names. I knew his name, but I was that guy, the uh, the English guy from The Thing, the thing we weren't really allowed to talk about. I got a feeling he turned up at the famous Muzo's Grill just to find out who I was. Oh, yo, he said when he saw me at the bar. We were led to our table by a large, muscular Mexican. Arnie gave me some of his spiel and then asked if it was okay to talk about the thing we'd done and I told him we could keep it very general without mentioning names, dates or locations and he told me that they'd all got their writers to work on the ideas. Except Anika. She seemed to have a personal fund of ideas. You should keep an eye on her. Oh, she's already on a list, I said. <laughs> he said. Did they help our ideas? I shrugged. Not really, but Anika's were the best. He looked suddenly deflated. His chance to help the great mission to serve had not been realised. It was funny how nakedly apparent his boyish enthusiasm had been. Underneath his tan there was the grey pallor of death, and his eyes became pools of deepest despair. He wiped his face with a hand and put his smile and his face back on with a vigorous rub. Yeah, we got carried away thinking we were somehow uh, useful. Still, it felt nice for the fleeting moment we could credibly enjoy it. And so, what's your story, Sammy? My story isn't particularly interesting. No, I bet you killed somebody, though. I can see it. He broke a breadstick and pointed the jagged end at me accusingly. Did you uh, kill someone? Not today. He burst out laughing. Not today. <laughs> he had this curious laugh that started quiet and built up. You're funny for a G-man or whatever the Brit equivalent is. What's the Brit equivalent? Uh, MI6 or MI5? What's the difference? Uh, nobody knows. So which are you? Well, neither. I'm out. I'm a private consultant. And that's why you're here. He crunched on his breadstick and then his salad arrived. His nose wrinkled at the sight of it in absolute disgust. Fucking vegetables. He almost spat in it, he looked so sad. My steak looked good. I caught his expression and cut it in two, passing half of it to him on a bread plate. Ah, to hell with a diet, am I right? He grinned. Well, everything is a diet, I told him. Well, he said, closing his eyes as he munched on the blood-sopping beef. That's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you know, deep. Well, that's what I was thinking. I don't just want to give you my story. I mean, the story I've, I've got. I thought I might write it down for you. Oh, why don't you brought me to lunch for screenwriting lessons? No, no, I said. Not exactly. I just don't want to give you my story, though, like that. And anyway, this isn't my story. I couldn't do that. They'd have me shot. Well, they still do then? Nowadays, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Listen to you. Your voice has changed. It has? Yeah, it sounds more American-y. I don't think it has. Okay, so whose story is it? All right, well, let's say it's a colleague. I'd have to dress it up, but there's a nice twist, and I think... I don't know, but I think it would make a really good movie, especially these days. Okay, he said. What you can do is write it out in prose as best you can, like a short story, if you will. This is what we call a, a treatment. It could be any length. A couple of pages are good, but if you want to go into more detail, that's fine, too. I'd go for the short one. No one, including me is going to read more than two pages unless they're really into it anyway, like for real money. Uh, when you're finished, when you're done, you can send it to my office and uh, I'll have it... Uh... No, no, you see, I couldn't do that. What, because of the uh, material, the, the secret element? 
Well, there's no point exposing myself or the people involved if it isn't going to go anywhere. Or uh, exposing this, uh, this colleague of yours. This isn't autobiographical, I said. It's something I heard about somebody, and it's probably apocryphal. So based on a true story, huh? Sort of. Listen, I did kind of write something down. I'm, I'm not very good at speaking. I handed him the envelope, a white envelope, but A4 and without a green slip inside, and I laid it on the table. Whoa, you zealot, motherfucker! he said, lifting it and weighing it with one hand. That's a little more than I was expecting, but uh, this steak is good and you're intriguing, so uh, I'll take it home. I'll give you my two cents for what it's worth, and then... No, I said. No, you have to read it here. I, I can't. Do you know what would happen to me if people saw me sitting here reading a treatment with a goddamn writer sat opposite me? I'd be laughed out of this town, at least louder than I already am. And it's too long. Well, just read the first two pages. You said that's all you needed to read anyway. Ugh, oh, condemned out of my own mouth. Was the salad not to your... Uh... A waiter stood beside our table, bent at a certain angle. Yeah, yeah, just take it away. Arnie waved him off. And bring another or whatever this is and two more of these. You're not drinking, Sammy? I shook my head as he finished his drink and then reached across the table and took mine. Ugh. The last of the lunchtime drinkers, he said. The noble end of a dying breed. <sighs> he sighed and took the pages out of the envelope. He read quickly at first, glancing around in the hope no one was watching. It could be mistaken for a contract or something else to do with money. Then he went back to the beginning and started reading again. He put the paper on the table and leaned over it with his hands supporting his head, his fingers massaging his temple. Okay, he said when the steak came and he chopped it up into pieces quickly and methodically and then propped a page up against the mineral water and read as he popped chunks of meat into his mouth, one after the other, grunting in carnal satisfaction. He didn't read the whole thing. He went back once more and read the first page. And then he put the whole thing back in the envelope and handed it back to me. And that's, um... And please, I want you to be totally straight with me here, Sammy. He put a hand on the envelope. That's not you. I shook my head. It's a bit of a legend. We don't think this really happened. It's just when I saw you guys last month and you were all talking and pitching those ideas, I thought I should put it together. I thought this was as good a story as any. I'd never thought of it before. And you haven't shown anyone else this, he said. Another producer, your colleagues. An agent. You don't have an agent, do you, Sammy? The thought seemed to horrify him. He clutched his chest theatrically. No, I said, shaking my head again. He was lost for a moment in thought and didn't seem to notice himself ordering ice cream when the waiter came to clear everything away. The thing would be to get Connery to do it, he said wistfully. You think he might be interested? I doubt it. Again, Arnie's face fell. It was like he'd been running up the side of the hill and he'd suddenly fallen into a very, very, very deep hole. It would sort of ruin his public image, and then after that League of Extraordinary Bullshit film, he's basically retired. Still, that would make it more fun. We might need him to be in it a bit more, or whoever we end up with. What do you mean? Well, we pick someone else, roughly equivalent. Burt Reynolds is still working, uh, Jimmy Kahn is cheap, or Michael Caine, Roger Moore. Roger Moore would be an obvious replacement. Have you thought this might be a book? Well, no, no, who reads books? Yeah, salient point. So you liked it then? Liked it? I loved it. I'll take out an option on it right now, today. Really? No, fuck no. You need to rewrite it first. Don't, don't worry, I'll give you notes. I'm not sure about that, I said. 
He spluttered on his ice cream. Oh, the artiste has arrived, has he? Listen, buddy, a film is a collaborative business and you have to be a collaborator. And if you think that has dark associations because of the Nazis during the occupation, then he started to get the idea. At the moment, it's too dark. Dark is good. Ever since Batman began, we love dark, but you have got to keep it within certain limits. Okay, I said. It was weird that we sat opposite people and we ate, and on the table all the time there were these weapons. How trusting we'd all become. How naive. How many times I thought of plunging a knife into someone's throat or a, a fork into someone's face or spooned out someone's eye, all in the middle of a meal while they're innocently troughing through their lasagna. Arnie carved a little excavation in his ice cream and ate thoughtfully. Right, there are a few obvious things to change, and that's good because if this is based on anyone you actually have knowledge of, it would be a, a good idea to put some blue water between you and them. Okay, for example, just move the whole thing to the States. No one wants to see Britain, unless it's Harry Potter or James Bond, and then even then it's, it's usually only Scotland, London, and everywhere else in the world but England. Okay. The other thing is the first murder. He was at a point in his ice cream when there wasn't much left, and he was having to concentrate on having to capture melting nubs. Go on. You, you can't have him kill an eight-year-old girl right at the beginning as his first victim. It'll alienate everyone. You, 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 want, a, you want a serial killer like uh, Hannibal Lecter, someone we can kind of you know, get into. Change it to a 40-year-old man, a fat American, and we'll be rocking and rolling, okay? Everyone will be with you. Really? We don't mind murder, but we can't have him punching down. You know this, surely. Y y did he really kill an eight-year-old girl? Who? The guy, you know, who, uh, you know, he waved his hand. The guy who's, you know, this is based on? It's not based on anyone. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And it's definitely not you. Yes. See, I wouldn't be having this conversation if I thought it was you, he assured me. I'd be running into the traffic with my hair on fire. In the end, Arnie did buy the option, and we signed contracts that afternoon, as he complained about his ruined diet. He'd filled his pockets with candy bars he'd bought from the machine in the lobby of the building. The money was nothing, but it showed he had faith in me. I also wanted him to leave some kind of paper trail, so that if he went off with my idea, I could show that he'd stolen it from me. On the plane back to New York, I intended to reread the treatment, but I fell asleep, and for several months I thought nothing of it. I was spending a lot of time in and around Baghdad, and, and then I was six months in Guantanamo Bay, observing. When I got back home, Arnie had left me a bunch of messages. Many were notes for the copy of the treatment that I'd finally sent over after a lot of badgering and badgering and badgering on his part. I was not very pleased with it, but he liked it. Every step I took away from what I saw as the truth made me feel like there was no real point in doing it at all. The original idea had been something like hiding in plain sight, the idea was to me a colossal joke, just put it out there, a confession of sorts, but with no sense of guilt, no remorse, or even triumph particularly. It just struck me as something that would have been good to have in the world for a while. I'd been wondering when I was going to be caught. I didn't relish the idea, and my plan B was suicide. I had acquired various pills and concealed razor blades, but then I'd get unexpectedly excited somewhere and go and use them on someone else, and I'd have to go about getting some more. Around this time, I was discovering the dark net, and that was a good place to get what I needed, but the risks involved still felt unnecessarily high. Again, I stress, I didn't want to get caught, and the whole fascination for me had been in getting away with it, 
From the very beginning, the elation I felt was in that sense of walking, not running away from something terrible and feeling the bonds that tied you to the horror and the blood getting thinner and thinner, gossamer thin, in fact, and then snapping. But wouldn't it be marvellous to be caught and to kill myself, but to leave behind a permanent record of what I'd achieved? And not only that, but for that to have been consumed and even loved by people as a major piece of art, or at least a movie. Also, the very act of writing had its own morbid pleasures. My ghosts were fading. It had started off a village where I knew everyone's face, but now they were a small town and some of them blended one into the other. Murder had become routine. Writing about it brought back that first hot flush of joyful revelation. I felt young once more, living in the memories of years ago. Writing felt like the extension of murder by other means. There were so many cruelties possible, even within an accumulation of words and phrases, so many deceits and misdirections. Very slight touches could turn the ball in one direction or another. For my name to be known, not famous necessarily, but known, I would be interviewed perhaps for a podcast. And knowing Arnie, and we met another couple of times in this period, I knew he would want me involved in the production, if only to save money on a technical advisor. He liked having me around. He liked talking to me. He said there was a, a frisson, a word I'd heard somewhere before. I'm not sure where. Jennifer, probably. The treatment had got longer, and he said that it might be an idea for me to write a book. It didn't really matter to him because he was going to get some hired scriptwriter to turn my treatment into a script. We talked over the phone about credits, which I'm ashamed to say I was quite insistent on. I wanted a story by and a screenplay credit. He said that last part might be difficult, but I bought a copy of Final Draft and watched some YouTube tutorials. It wasn't hard in the end to put something together, enough for me to get at least partial credit. All I had to do was convert the format. He said if I wrote it as a novel, then I could get a based on the novel by credit, and plus the novel would be credited to me alone. I liked the sound of that, but then I began to wonder if some of my old bosses, Ollie to be exact, would appreciate it. And what about his father, Mr Arrow? Might he not object? I had an honest feeling he wouldn't, and if he did, then there was another solution to consider. Connery is a speculative novel written by John Bleasdale. It was read by Kai Ross. And the music was by Two Minute Noodles.